3: Hello?
4: And welcome to the Day's Work Podcast on this 5 September 2017. Having some technical difficulties getting right out of the gate. Trying to get our guest uh, on as well. I'm Stu, your host, uh, also known as Jeffrey A. Stewart. Uh, have a, a good show planned for you tonight on distributism. Uh, certainly a favorite amongst the Dorothy Day uh, caucus crowd, as are any of the um, third way economic systems. Thought about starting it off with just a, a primer on distributism, though I think we'll probably talk about some of that tonight anyway. Uh, But it'd be nice to get into some practical uh, aspects of distributism, because after all, that is a criticism you hear a lot. You know, how would you change the the economy toward a more distributist economy? All right, so playing catch-up now. Uh, Let's see if we have them on the line and if it's uh, working now. Uh, Zeb, are you there? I'm here. Oh, all right. So we just came in under the sun, or uh, under the wire, rather, uh, to to get started. So, folks, uh, tonight with me – Zebulon, so is it Bocelli? Is that how we'd say your last name? That's right. Okay, Zebulon Bocelli uh, is, is our guest tonight, and he wrote a, a great article on the, at the Kitchen Table, which is the blog for the Dorothy Day Caucus. But I think we ought to also, uh, before we get into that, we ought to take some time to, to get to know Zeb a bit. So Zeb, I have to ask from the start, a name like Zebulon, when I hear that, I think of Pike's <laughs> Peak. So where, where did uh-huh. that come from?
3: That came from the Waltons. The grandfather on the Waltons was named Zebulon and I'm not sure if my dad liked the character or if he liked the actor, but anyway, he insisted on that name and my mom allowed it. So, yeah, well,
4: that's, I've got to be 1978. Have you ever met another Zeb?
3: I've never met another Zebulon. I've met some Zebediahs, and uh I've I've tried to steer clear of other Zebulons. I'm afraid of what would happen if we would meet. <laughs> yeah,
4: there can exactly. be only one in my opinion. <laughs> I understand? Uh, So about you, though, how uh, how did you get involved with the American Solidarity Party? What attracted you to it?
3: You know, I honestly don't remember where I first heard of it, but it was certainly in either late 2015 or early 2016 when that crazy um, primary campaign was going on with Trump and 14 or 15 other Republicans and Bernie and Hillary on the Democrat side. And it seemed like the craziest time ever in American national politics. And I'd been looking for years and years for anybody in either party or, or a third party that really represented something compatible with Catholic social teach, teaching because I am a faithful Catholic. And that's when somehow or other I came upon the Solidarity Party and immediately started following them and joined as soon as I could. Uh, first time in my life I've ever found a political home. So you know, like most, so of, had you probably, ever like most other the current members, before? it was due to the desperation of uh, what we were seeing in the 2016 election.
4: Okay. I think we, the party probably got a, a lot of folks uh, that way. It was uh, very unique, obviously, in terms of elections. Now, about you personally, though, I think you have a, uh, you know, it's a job certainly that I think people wouldn't let like go. Well, that's, you know, a different thing. Because as I understand it, you work in, in produce. But the unique thing yeah. is, I think, who you distribute for, and uh, which could be a whole show in itself. I find the whole thing fascinating, right. but tell us right. a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, well, I run a company that does marketing and distribution for a cooperative of 18 Amish organic produce farmers, and I've been doing that since 2008, and I uh, started in 2008. I was actually in the process of trying to start my own farm. Originally, I was just going to drive a delivery truck uh, part-time, a couple days a week for this group of Amish growers who I got connected to, but very quickly started taking on sales calls and then a little bit of bookkeeping, and it just kind of grew from there. And um, after that year, I started up a separate company to sell all the produce under so that it could be under one name that wasn't any one of the farm's names, and I've grown from there. And so, yeah, my full-time job now is running this company selling produce for Amish organic produce growers in Western Pennsylvania.
4: And so for most people, I think experience with, with the Amish might be limited to seeing the movie witness. Uh, so uh-huh. <laughs> how, what, what, can you offer? I mean, what's probably the biggest misconception out there about the Amish and, and then also how, how do you get involved with, with, with folks like that uh, given, uh, you know, they have a reputation that they're, they're somewhat uh, secluded, I guess, for lack of a better word.
5: Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, probably that may be one of the biggest misconceptions about them because while they are somewhat secluded, they're also very curious about – the. they call us us the English, any non-Amish to them is English. So they're very curious about the English world and very informed about it because they work hand in glove with English people all the time from their taxi drivers, as they call them, who take them visiting and on business and work trips to people who they work with in the course of running their businesses – So they know all about smartphones and the iPad and stuff like that. And, you know, if they see you pull out a smartphone, they want to know what brand it is and what generation it is. Not that they use it, but they're familiar enough with it. So they're very open to being friends with English people and working with us. Um, But they do try to maintain their own separate culture. And the technology thing, that's the biggest way that they do that. And that's the other big misconception is people think that they have some kind of religious injunction against technology where they think it's evil or somehow demonic or something and that's not true at all for them it's at least in my experience speaking with them you know in depth over the years it's extremely pragmatic and they weigh each new technological opportunity and try to determine if it's something number 1 that they need is there a reason that they should depart from the ways of their fathers if that's how they phrase it, the way of their fathers, to adopt this new technology. Is it necessary for their survival and for them to thrive? And two, what could be the negative sort of unintended consequences of adopting it? So, and it varies community by community. Some may allow bicycles and some do not. Some may allow the use of cell phones and some do not. And there's nothing about it that's really religious in the sense of like a taboo. It's really just a pragmatic decision that they make. So they're not anti-technology. They're just very wary of its effects. And that's a lesson that I have really have tried to take to heart and um, internalize from them. I think we all could benefit from having more of that attitude.
4: Yeah, a little more due diligence in life and what we bring into it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's, uh, I think, move on with the topic. And, and folks, as we begin the discussion here on, on the practical uh, aspects of distributism, uh, just to uh, remind you, you can call in 917 889 and you can ask uh, Zeb questions yourself about what we're talking about, and it it comes again from the article he wrote at the the Kitchen Table, uh, which is the blog for the Dorothy Day Caucus, uh, which is made up of members of the American Solidarity Party, and when I first asked him on, I thought we'd probably talk about the whole uh, article, but I think that it's large enough that we'll probably have to have him on a few times. But uh, I probably think fun with me. It, good, good. And it, it it makes programming easier too. if I easier to find guests. Uh, but let's just start off, I think, with one of the first openings that you are the opening uh, that you you had in the paper, you talked about private property. And what was interesting to me is I after the article was posted, uh, I saw an exchange with you and I'm probably probably not the only one that had this reaction. But I saw one lady who uh, really took offense to your notion that um, private property and that there's a role of government in private property. I mean, so you know, it was the what do you mean it's not my property? And uh, so is is what you're saying in the article about government intervention in private property? Is that uh, are we to say we don't own anything? I mean, is it is my house not my house? Is my car not my car?
3: They are. No, they are your car and your house. And I certainly, along with the Catholic Church, believe in a natural right of every person to private property. But the question is, which property is whose and under what conditions? And it's a really, at least for me, when I first started reading about this different way of thinking about private property, it was really counterintuitive because it goes opposite to the way we talk about it in everyday life and the way we're taught to think about it. But if you really look at it when it comes down to brass tacks, what you own is what the state says you own, especially if we take the state to mean not necessarily um, what's enacted in public uh, political statutes, but maybe we should say what society says you own more generally, because it's got to be something that's agreed to by the community. There's There's no objective scientific way to analyze outside of the social context who owns what or whether you really are the rightful owner of this or that piece of property. And in a modern state society that we live in, where we have a government, the government is always the the last recourse in determining who really does own something. So even if it's something as simple as the shirt you're wearing or the jacket, um, if somebody else says, actually, that's mine. I, I lost that in the park and you picked it up. That's mine. Or if they say I was robbed and you bought that from somebody who stole it from me, The only way you can really settle that is they take you to court, and whatever the court says is the answer of who does own that. And I think we all acknowledge that while we feel very strongly and clearly that we own certain things, that there is some ambiguity in those situations where maybe we thought we came upon it justly, but we can find out that the matter of fact is we do not. And if that's the case, then we don't really own it. And the only way that that is determined and found out is by taking that question to society usually embodied in the government. And on a a much larger scale, I mean, I think that's true for all property, really, but where where it really matters is on a larger scale where we're talking about things like real estate or even a larger scale, a more abstract scale, where we're talking about ownership of entities like businesses or shares in entities um, or financial instruments. All of those things rely 100% on what the government says about who owns what. And so private property is a government intervention because it is the government that is determining who owns what, what it means to own something just by owning something. You can't do literally anything you want with it. You have limited rights of ownership over it. And it's the government that that determines what specifically those rights are. And so the notion that there's such a thing as um, a distribution of goods that is more or less free from government intervention, I think is false. And that's what the point I'm trying to make with this, is that all distribution of goods is done, at least is founded entirely upon government intervention. And so recognizing that, that, that doesn't mean we therefore must be socialists and um, agree to common ownership of every single thing. We're, that just means that we're free to construe ownership in different ways and to use... The mechanism of the state to determine how we want goods to be distributed. That's where I'm really trying to get to by saying that property, in its essence, is a form of government intervention.
4: So I guess if I characterized it, that you see what you're saying is that government has uh, at least enforces the boundaries that maybe society has come up with in terms of uh, of personal property. Because without that, someone could come up and just, uh, hey, well, y- you know, your car's mine now. Tough luck.
3: Right. Yeah. It enforces the boundaries and it enforces the basis of it too. I mean, like I said, with the example of the jacket, how do you know that you actually own any particular thing? You can tell a story about how you came by it, but if that thing wasn't rightfully in the possession of the person you got it from or the business or whatever, then there still could be that open question. And that question can only be solved by recourse to either some kind of social conventions or to the government. It can't be Solved by some kind of appeal to nature or to um, brute facts.
4: Yeah, and I think that you know the individual in question. That talk really seemed to uh, it really concerned them. I, I, I would almost say it scared them. And what they heard out of that was is that you're saying the government give you know the government owns our private property. Uh, and it was very hard. In fact, it was impo- at the end of the day, it was impossible to uh, to convince them otherwise.
3: Sure. Well, yeah, and it's definitely, I mean, I've read this this concept of property a lot of times and a lot of different arguments for it before I was able to accept it because it is so counterintuitive.
4: Okay, let's uh, let's go ahead and go to our first caller Let's see who we have on the line. Caller, uh, so uh, who are you, and uh, what would you like to ask Zeb?
6: Well, I was going to call in and call you all some cultural Marxists and socialists and stuff, but... Uh, I don't have my full right winger script with me, so I can't even think of the rest <laughs> of the way that goes. Okay, uh, but no, how you guys doing, man?
4: Doing well. How about you?
6: Yeah, I'm doing well, man. Uh, just just watching what's going on now. Uh, you got the drama over at DSA. Uh, we have the Dems clearly uh, pushing towards more corporatism, and really ignoring even the, the Bernie Sanders faction of what we we consider somewhat progressive policies. Uh, what, what move does the left really have at this point uh, besides participating in, you know, kind of this two party nonsense into a way to where we end up uh, back at the same Clintonite Obama ish, you know, type of fake left once again. So I mean, how do, how do we get outside of that right now? Or are we just talking about building things towards the future? Cause I, I'm just trying to figure out where there's actually, you know, enough to get a party started or to to push the Democratic Party left, because these centrists, man, they they appear more activated than uh, the left does right now. I know that's a lot, but I think y'all get what I'm trying to add.
3: Sure. Well, I think, yeah, there's a lot of people who feel excluded by the centrist consensus um, on all different sides. And unfortunately, that's where the power and the money is right now for national elections. I think that the kind of organizing our organizing that uh, third parties and other organizations like the American Solidarity Party, like the DSA, and many others are doing on the local level is where it's got to start with grassroots organizing and, and activism and getting people elected on the more local level, I think that's where we have real chances because we can go out and meet people and talk to them and carry our message face-to-face rather than trying to win whole swaths of the population, which uh, organizations, small organizations, new organizations just aren't able to do. So whether it's city council seats, school board seats, um, I live in a rural area, so township supervisor positions, those are the kinds of positions that alter- alternative political parties like ours, I think, need to be aiming at while carrying our message as much as we can to everybody everywhere. The actual politics, and in terms of electoral politics, I think is going to have to be local to start with.
4: So, Zeb, you know what I find interesting about about uh, his call was that, you know, he spoke to the, in terms of like the political left, um, and at least like where I'm coming from, probably most people would would push me or they would categorize me as coming from the right, um, yeah. I've heard people say you're coming from the left, but I don't. Uh, you know, it's not fair for me to really uh, characterize that. But I think my 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 observation is I find it interesting that distributism. I don't think it fits into the normal left-right paradigm. Um, and so, how do you feel about that?
3: Well, that's yeah, it's a very interesting question, and I had I thought an interesting um, discussion with Jacob. I don't, I'm not totally sure how to say his name. <laughs> Do you know just the other uh, contributor to the uh, Dorothy Day Caucus, Archenbach? Dr. A,
7: is
4: what we'll call him, since uh, I know he's a yeah. know he's a doctor, but it's hard to say his last name. Sorry, Jacob.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. So he was um, he was saying that distributism is a form of capitalism. I've seen other writers who are distributists coming from the left say that it's a form of socialism. And it really depends on how loosely you define either of those. I think you'd have to define capitalism pretty loosely to say distributism is a form of capitalism. And certainly certainly you'd have to define socialism loosely to say distributism is a form of that. And I think it combines aspects that people associate with both. I mean, my starting point here is that, and I think that this is what I take from the Catholic Church teaching, is that the universal end of all goods is the good of of mankind as a whole and all God gave all of the earth's goods to man as as a whole in trust in stewardship and so it's ours to divide and to share and use as we see fit as a whole and that's that's where I'm saying that I think society nowadays embodied mostly in the state has the natural position of determining who does own what, and, and as distributists, we can recognize that fact and make use of it to uh, create a more just distribution. Some people, like including the ones that you were, the lady you mentioned earlier that was having a hard time with this, viewed that as a form of socialism because it denies that there's some kind of natural right to particular property prior to the state that the state can encroach on, that people have some sort of sovereignty as individuals. I oppose that kind of individualism. And some people would say that makes me a leftist or coming to distributism from the left. Um, I think some of the policies that I advocate, and we might get into some of those here and some of them later, certainly are in line with policies that more explicitly left-wing people advocate. But I think that achieving the end of distributism, which is widespread ownership of capital, is going to require some things that do look more socialist. But at the same time, it, Distributism recognizes the importance and the the right to private property, and the value of having workers actually own the tools and the capital that they use for production, not having workers be just employees of some huge entity, you know, of a state-owned uh, company or production system. So there's there's ways that you can construe it both ways, and uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are going to see me as coming from the left, and might see you and others, maybe Jacob, as coming from the right. But I think we converge on the goal, and where we're going to have disputes is how do we get there? So, my piece is about how I think we should get there.
4: Agree. I think at, at some point we need to also uh, discuss that lexicon, I think, sometimes gets in the way and how we say things. And there are certain little Shorter. buzzwords that people hear. All right. Well, we're uh, we're a little long for the break. Uh, thank you, caller. Uh, so, we're going to take a, a short break. And just to remind you, you can call in 917 889 3030 to talk with. Uh, Zeb, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Ever since. Let's say we've, since the Catholic Worker began, besides the Chinese-Japanese War, we've had the Spanish Civil War, the Italian-Ethiopian War, World War II, Korea, plus violence at home at Watts, Newark, Attica. Do you think mankind will
5: ever learn nonviolence? And now the Indo-China War. The longest war war in our history. I think that uh, just as we're living in a nuclear age, something we have grown so tremendously in scientific knowledge, it doesn't seem uh, too much to say that men can begin to awaken to the fact that they haven't grown enough spiritually and haven't recognized their spiritual capacities. And I think that today there is certainly the beginnings of a movement of nonviolence all over the world. Of course, the teachings of Gandhi in India, and Vinoba Bhave today, his successor. And then the work here in our country of the Martin Luther King movement and the Cesar Chavez movement in the West Coast, they wouldn't like to have it labeled in that way, but I think that uh, their names are so familiar to people, Uh, both in the union field, which Uh, interest me very much because I think that it's beginning to work from the bottom up instead of from the top down. Everybody looks to the state and looks to the state for funding and looks to the state to keep our schools going. Always turning to the state and the state isn't supposed to be functioning in this way. Martin Buber says the state should be a community of communities and uh, certainly the popes have said that The state should never do what smaller bodies can do, and here when unions and credit unions and cooperatives are the basis of men's mutual aid and working together, it's an entirely different political point of view, and it makes for peace.
8: The right to property is personal, but the use of property is socially conditioned though we may own it, nevertheless, we may not do with it whatever we please. You can immediately see that there are two possible errors that can creep into economics. One would be the error of saying we insist upon personal rights to the exclusion of social use. What would that be? That would be monopolistic capitalism so prevalent in the last century in which the capitalists said, I own this property, I want no church, I want no Bible, I want no moral law, I want no state, I want no society telling me what I can do with my money. And that resulted in the concentration of wealth in the hands of the few, the impoverishment of the masses, a system to a great extent that was broken up. Thanks be to God rightly by the advent of labor unions. But that could be the error, insisting on the right for getting the use. And the other error of insisting on the social use and forgetting the personal right is obviously communism, in which all property belongs to the state, and a man has no personal right whatever. Then the state owns all the chickens, all the eggs, all of the hens, and it has a steak cook that makes an omelet, and you eat the omelet whether you like your eggs that way or not. Okay,
4: we're back. Uh, Some little vignettes there from uh, Dorothy Day herself and from uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, very timely with the the topic tonight. I'm on with... uh, Zebulon Bocelli, we're talking about distributism and some practical uh, ways uh, of implementing it. So hopefully we'll get to that. I'm not sure if we will or not. Uh, and when we last left off, well, we started talking about uh, how distributism can be uh, interpreted both as a, something right-leaning and left-leaning, uh, depending on the direction you're coming from. And where I'd like to uh, like to start off again is then you know, Reading from uh, your article, Zeb, you wrote, uh, distributism is not nice capitalism. It is bluntly at anti-capitalist. But what I mean by capitalism is not free markets and entrepreneurialism. And that ties into my, my uh, lexicon uh, comment as well. So what do you mean, though, when you say that uh, – or I should – let me ask it this way. What do you see as the difference between a free market and capitalism?
3: Yeah, all right. so a free market is just where people are free to exchange goods or exchange currency for goods and buy what they want with what they have, including um, creating, producing what they want with their labor and their own capital, selling it at the price they can get and buying what they want with the money they get from selling what they make. So that's, that's a free market. That's just a market economy that is free from command from the state. Capitalism, as as I'm defining it, and I think it's important to uh, make this distinction with capitalism. Is I mean, it's right in the name, capital. It's owned by owners, not necessarily by workers. And the important thing is that people get paid simply for that ownership. And those are what that's the class that's called the capitalist class, as opposed to the labor class. And so there's a in-between class, of course, that's the business owner who works in the business he owns, maybe. He has some employees, but still works full-time in his job. Or maybe he's basically just like a contractor who has no employees, but also is not an employee. He just makes stuff works for people, does construction, something like that. So he's not exactly a laborer, not exactly a capitalist. Um, But what's distinctive to me about capitalism is that you can get paid just for owning stuff. And most of the capital – Resources in this country are owned by people who don't work at the place where where they own the capital. Even if if, if it's something as simple as having a retirement fund, a 401k or something, or investment in a mutual fund, you might be working at your job, but you own little pieces of a whole bunch of other companies, and you're getting paid or more, more likely banking the payments that are coming in from that ownership. So there's a distinction there but there's a whole group of people who don't work at all who just own a business or a part of a business or a whole bunch of businesses and get paid the profit that other people are creating by working within that business. And so distributism, I am saying is anti-capitalist because the goal of, the goal of distributism is for the worker to own the business or the means of production that he works in. And We often think of that most idealistically as a whole bunch of little shop owners and farmers and and builders who have their own one man or one woman operation, or maybe a one family operation. But I think we recognize as modern distributists that most of our economy is not going to operate on that scale, even if more of it should and could, if we were able to decentralize capital still, there's going to have to be a lot of businesses where a whole lot of people are working together under one umbrella, but those can still be owned owned by the workers in the form of a worker-owned cooperative. And that's a growing form of ownership and form of business that could completely take the place of the capitalist system where there's owners who simply employ people who, at the end of the day, have nothing in the business other than the paycheck that they get out of it. And so I would say distributism is anti-capitalist because it, it opposes the setup where one person or group of people own the business and get the profit from it, and another set of people work at that business. Distributism wants those people to be the same people. They want the worker distributism wants the workers to own the capital that they work in or with.
4: You know people will hear you talk about all of this, you know, worker ownership and things like that and immediately, you know, you're going to get the well, well that sounds like communism. I mean, so um so what do you, what do you say to that?
3: Well, yeah, in, in communism Um, At least what people think of as communism, strict state controlled communism, the workers didn't own the capital, the state did. And supposedly the concept was that the people as a whole owned all capital. But in effect, it was the state and the state bureaucrats who became basically like the aristocracy who derived the profit from ownership. But any other case, even if things were ideal the way they were intended to be, it wouldn't be the workers of the particular enterprises that own the capital. It would be everyone altogether owns all capital. So the farmer or the, whole, the group of farmers on a cooperative farm, they don't own the farm. Everybody does, including the neighbors, including the factory workers, including people on the other side of the country. Everyone owns that farm collectively. Well, distributism doesn't want that kind of collective ownership. They want The farm or the factory or whatever it is to be owned by the particular workers who are working in that enterprise, because those are the people who are giving their life to it and who have the most at stake in seeing it succeed and prosper and in being a humane place. You know, when everything's collectively owned, it's easy to say, well, the farmer shouldn't be getting paid that much. um, So let's reduce the price that we're paying for the grain or the milk or whatever. And they can just impose that, and then that can be imposed under uh, in capitalism or communism because, as it is now, the end market can impose that. And, does. and my family comes from dairy farming, actually, and that, that's exactly how it is. The buyers have much more economic power that they can impose a price on the farmer, and if it were communism, the state could impose uh, a price that would make farming unlivable. So the difference yeah, with think... distributism is the workers themselves own it and make the decisions about it.
4: It uh, has always seemed to me that the difference between capitalism and communism is really uh, that the guys running the show or really owning the capital. have just changed the, uh, the letters on their hats. You know, they're, they're really, Mm
3: -hmm.
4: really fulfilling the same purpose. They just call themselves something different.
3: Yeah. At the end of the day, that's true.
4: Okay. Let's take another call. Uh, Caller uh, you're on the air. Uh, What would you like to ask Zeb?
3: Hi,
0: Stu. Uh, this is uh, Stephen Beal calling.
4: Hey, how's it going, Hi, Stephen?
0: <laughs> Fine. Well, I'm really enjoying the program. Thanks very much for this. And
4: uh, Yeah, I have
0: a, a question for Zeb um, regarding ownership. I uh, really enjoyed what you said about uh, the fact that ownership of property really depends on a kind of social compact. So my question for you is, do you think there's a difference between different kinds of property, Um Do we own some things differently from the way we own others? I'm thinking, for example, of the difference between land and capital goods and consumer goods. Uh, What would you say about that?
3: Yes, certainly there are big differences between how things are owned and how, how tightly they're bound to the individual, I would say. And like I was saying, with financial instruments, stocks, or mutual funds, or or even savings, um, bonds, things like that, those exist only on paper, and only because the government says so. Then, things like land, you know, again, you only own land if that if it's on the written on a deed somewhere in the county courthouse, and if somebody can dig up a, an older deed and say, hey, wait a minute you don't own that piece of land that you've been treating as your own for 40 years and thought that you owned because this older deed proves that the property line was somewhere else. Well, then that's actually the state of, that's the truth. That's the fact. Um, So you have personal use of the, of the land, but it still is the government at the end who will determine. And it's only by going to the government records that you can determine what you own. So something like your toothbrush or the sandwich that you're eating That's never really going to come up in in any kind of case, a civil case or anything else, um, to be disputed um, by the government. And in that kind of situation, it really is more like uh, possession is nine-tenths of the law, as they say. But still, at the end of the day, if somebody wanted to make a case and could that you were eating their sandwich or using their toothbrush and somehow had it in your house or in your refrigerator, they could hypothetically call in the state and still make a case And at the end of the day, it would still be the state who has the determining say. But usually that kind of thing is so papered over by social convention that we don't even have to get to that point. And so it still is a social institution, whether you own anything in particular, but it's much more informal, and we kind of just know how it works on that level and don't have to go to the state. So we can treat it more like a natural situation.
0: Yeah, thanks. Uh, uh, Do you think we should treat those different kinds of property uh, differently when it comes to uh, creating a distributive society? Um, You know, for example, capital goods are something you can make for yourself. And uh, for that reason, I guess you have the right to destroy them if you want to. Um, But that's not the case with land, for example, uh, or maybe some other Mm
3: things. Yeah, some things for sure. There's only a certain allotment and they're given uh, in my theological view given by God to all mankind. And so we have no right to destroy them or to destroy their future use. And as a resident of Western Pennsylvania, that's something that I see and and deal with all the time. And the farmers I work with too. So much of the land around here was stripped, my strip mined in the 20th century. And so still it's basically unusable as agricultural land. And that created a, a boom for a short time for coal workers in the area. But now that's all gone. There's a lot of ghost towns and, um, dwindling small towns like the the one I live in. And now we face the opportunity of shale gas, Marcellus gas. And it seems like it's going to be the same type of thing where um, outside capital owners send in work crews, extract that resource, profit from it, and then give us jobs for a little while, a little boom of economic activity, and then leave us again with some ruined land and not, not much more to show for it. So resources that are definitely... Constrained and scarce, like land or fossil fuels, clean air, clean water, Um, the biological world, definitely need to be stewarded in a a different way um, that preserves their use, distributes it for all people now, the goods of it, and preserves it, more importantly, in my opinion, for future generations. And you're right, that's not quite the case for capital goods, at least if we're talking about things like tools, where you could craft a shovel for yourself that makes you a more productive farmer and if you choose to you can destroy that shovel and we have little reason to want to intervene in that situation versus saying if you own the river you should be able to dam it or destroy it or salt the land if you want. In that case, you really are more of a tenant on humanity's common property for the time being.
0: Great answer. Thanks
4: a lot. All right. You're Thanks for calling, uh Doctor. Okay, take care. Let's uh and Zeb, let's go ahead and roll into one other call since we've we've had them waiting. Hello, uh, caller, you're you're on the air. What would you like to ask, Zeb? Hello. Hello, you're on.
1: All right. Okay. Oh, um. So, Zeb, I appreciate a lot of what you say about distributism. Um, as a background, I kind of know Zeb. Um, my general skepticism <laughs> when it comes to distrib- <laughs> my general skepticism when it comes to distributism is uh how we actually achieve it and how to get um, both capitalists and the many of the politicians that serve them who are frequently also capitalists to give up, uh, give up their power and capital willingly. Um, the, the, what the thing I always see missed in a lot of distributist writing is how to actually get there. Um, like the, the final goal seems very nice, but how do you actually? How do you actually achieve this? Well, it's actually relevant yeah, that's to, the, a great uh, question. to the article he we wrote. Well, I've, I've, I've seen it some in the article. Yep. Um, but I the, the idea of being able to um, say, you know, pressure either politicians or affect social changes, but I mean, these things have historically, even just the most meager gains, been achieved usually through, you know, incredible pain and suffering. It's so how like do you going achieve something? With the ring. Well, <laughs> it's it's like already living in Mordor and deciding you've had
3: enough. <laughs> that, what do you say to that? Yeah, yeah right. We we are uh, we are the orcs, and we need to uh, rise up against Armin. So, yeah, in the article, I I named some policies and some some general strategies, three general strategies to decentralize capital, then to distribute it directly and to expand the commons, and then I list some particular ways to do that. But I think the question here maybe is how do we even do that? Like if we know what policies we want to move towards the distributist end, which is widespread ownership of capital, how do we actually do that? And I think the first call that we we had, I mean, I think that's the first step, and it's a long journey. Um, but it, it's opting, I think, it's opting out of the conventional wisdom of the centrist consensus and opting out of the two-party political way of trying to accomplish things, and allying with new organizations and ways of organizing, such as the American Solidarity Party, and. Uh, Although I'm not a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, I applaud what they're doing and see them as allies on quite a few issues, if not everything. So I think it's going to require a lot of on the ground, face to face and not just running candidates as a sort of a PR move the way that um, third parties have tended to do in, in more recent years, at least more recent decades but forming lasting working political and organizational entities on the ground. That's gonna mean allying with labor because that's where a lot, for a lot of America, the last vestiges of any kind of political organization that's not just about electoral politics really is. So allying with labor and helping with labor movement, activities and organization. And i starting to take the local level offices that we can in the places that we can and growing from there. And um, I think it's going to be a long fight. I hope that it never has to become a matter of violent revolution as it has, you know, whether it's historical changes usually come with violent revolution, whether it's America's own revolution from monarchy and um, feudalism into liberal capitalism or the revolutions into socialism that we saw throughout the 20th century and what became the communist countries. And I hope that we can avoid that and move incrementally and peacefully towards disempowering the capitalist um, power class that runs our that runs our country and our national like nas- national and international scale businesses. but it's going to take a lot of hard work and I mean there's the chance that things come to a crisis point, whether ecologically, economically or otherwise, that there may be violence and I hope we can as solidarity form the bonds of um, solidarity that will enable us to endure that and to suffer through that and be a light sort of shining in the dark if things come to that for rebuilding after that kind of thing comes. But I think in the modern era with the kind of communication and education and production that we have, I have a lot of hope that we can do it through organizing and direct action on the ground, um, without having to come to that kind of revolutionary moment.
4: All right. Thank you, caller. And I think, uh, so bottom line, we didn't, uh, we didn't get where we are overnight and we're not going to return to a better place overnight. So, uh, when we come back from uh, this break, we'll go ahead and we're going to talk to Zeb about one of his, uh, one of his steps, which is countering, uh, capitalist concentration or capital concentration rather, Uh, and then we'll go from there. Again, if you want to call in, uh, 917-889-3030.
8: See you on the other side. When one speaks of property, one cannot anymore just speak of individual property. These tremendous industrial organizations are part of our modern life, and we do not wish to have them destroyed. The problem is, apply the basic principles of property to those who are linked up with corporations. First of all, any man who has stock in a corporation is entitled to returns on that stock. It is rightfully and lawfully his. He has aided in the organization by giving money capital and injustice is entitled to return. How about the worker? The worker does not give any cash, But he gives something more. He gives his life. Not just this day's work and that day's work for which he receives a wage, but the sum of all of the days, the rearing of his family, the beginning and the end of his physical existence. He is also entitled to some part of the social wealth which he helps to create, just as the stockholder is entitled to something. Therefore, there ought to be incorporation some form of co ownership in which a worker would receive some part of the profit which he has helped to produce. Certainly the man who gave money and who clipped coupons is entitled to his, but the worker also is entitled to some share in that wealth. need not be given in the form of talk alone. At any rate, some form of co-management, some form of co-ownership, in which the bond will deepen between himself and the industry where he works, in which he will feel some stability, in which he will no longer be working for someone, but in which he will be working with someone. No one class is entitled to take all of the profits.
4: Hey folks, Stu here from the Day's Work podcast. Do you like what we're doing here? Are you interested in political thought and policy that doesn't fit into the typical left-right paradigm? Are you interested in providing a Christ-centered witness in the public square? Or do you support the traditional family of mother, father, and child as the foundation of our society? Do you share our call for the greatest possible autonomy for local governments? Or do you advocate for an economy in accord with the dignity of human work, ordered towards ownership and opportunity? Well, you might find yourself at home with fellow travelers like us as part of the Dorothy Day Caucus. We are an independent group of like-minded members from the American Solidarity Party. Find out more about us at our Facebook group, Dorothy Day Caucus ASP, and more about the American Solidarity Party itself at solidarity-party.org. Pacelli talking about practical policies for a distributive economy. I'm your host, Stu. This is the Day's Work podcast. We're affiliated with the Dorothy Day Caucus, uh, made up of uh, members of the American Solidarity Party. When we left off, we were we just started hitting upon uh, one of Zeb's proposals uh, from his recent article countering capital concentration. So let me ask uh, from the start, uh, Zeb, why? Why do I care if uh, capital gets concentrated? Uh, you know, if these guys take the risk and they make it happen, uh, what skin is it off my back if I, I get all the products I need?
3: Well, yeah, if if you are a distributist, you care because you want owners, I mean, workers to own the capital that they work with. As a mere consumer, um, there are some disadvantages. Monopoly power tends to, reduce the selection of goods, reduce innovation and improvement, and increase prices. And we're starting to see that in some sectors of our economy as anti-monopoly enforcement is is lax in America now. And so monopoly power is growing. Um, But capital concentration just makes it way, way harder for anybody who has an entrepreneurial drive to actually be able to step out of the uh, wage labor sort of workforce and out of that cage and do something on their own and innovate and become independent. When things become more concentrated, there's much more power in the hands of the big players. And so they're able to use uncompetitive practices like operating at a loss in some locations or on some goods for years at a time sometimes to make it impossible for, small businesses to get started and to succeed and thrive. So that's why as a distributist, I really see a big problem with capital concentration and it keeps, it just keeps ownership out of the hands of way more people.
4: And I think probably would you say that you being a a small business owner, because I will say it's definitely true for me uh, that maybe perhaps we, we see this uh, more directly Uh, than the the average consumer out there?
3: Oh, yeah, for sure. It's um, Yeah, as a small business owner, it's extremely hard to – I mean, you can't compete. The only thing that we can do in in my business, the only competitive advantage we have is our location and the particular kind of farmers that I work with have a unique story. And so people who want something local to Western Pennsylvania that's organic and – from family farms, the big competitors don't have that. So I can offer that. And they're willing to cooperate with me and give me some leeway that they don't give to my bigger competitors. But if it were purely on a commodity basis, there's no way I could compete. This business would not exist if it weren't for that sort of little bit of leeway that our customers are willing to give us. And so the, the, yeah, the way that competitive landscape is much harder because of the concentration of, you know, there's a few big brands who basically own organic produce in America. They own many different brands and it all is owned by one, you know, a few big umbrella corporations, but those, they basically own the shelf space except for cases where we're able to get a little bit of um, sort of <laughs> almost charity or, or cooperation from the retailers who buy our stuff. If Capital weren't so concentrated. Every region would have multiple businesses like mine, who are filling the shelves of every grocery store, and you'd be buying mostly local stuff. Not, of course, you couldn't buy everything all the time locally, but to the extent that it can be done locally, it would be done, and that's what you'd be seeing in your stores. Now, when so you went that, down, that concentration is really keeping us away from that kind of the way things used to be, where businesses were smaller and more local and had more of a connection to their community.
4: And of course, as that capital concentrates, it's, it almost becomes darn near impossible to uh, to pick away at it.
3: Right. And it, it gains way more of a, an advantage over its workforce, too. And we've seen how, as capital has concentrated in the last 50 years, labor has lost a lot of its power. Um, unions have declined in membership wages have been stagnant or gone down for a lot of the population because as business gets bigger, labor they get more mobile and more able to leverage size against different populations in different locations and move around more easily and so are able to negotiate against labor or avoid having to go negotiate with labor and simply hold it sort of captive to the need for everyone needs to live, needs to work and, and earn a living somehow so that concentration has worked against the the workforce even more so i would say than it has the entrepreneur really
4: okay so alluding back though to where we started this where we talked about how government does have a way in shaping how private property is is uh, owned um when you went to you know become a a small business you had to go down to uh you know whatever local authority and you had to get a business license and, and file and things like that. So that leads into really it leads into your first point or one of your first recommendations, but that aspect of, of how we form businesses kind of sets the stage for some of the problems we have now. So if you could go into one of your, your proposals uh, regarding how companies could be formed in a way to give us a more distributive com- uh, economy.
3: Right. Yeah. So outside of someone who just has a proprietorship and has their entire life on the line, which is pretty rare, like that's not a very wise way to run a business when options are available for low risk, like an LLC or a corporation where your personal assets, your home and everything are not liable for what happens with your business. So if you want to get out of being a single proprietorship, you can form a different kind of business and have a lot of reduced risk. And also a lot of different ways of raising capital like selling shares or having investors that kind of thing and so our government has created these these methods and means and supports them and keeps them going to enable capital to grow and become more abstract where investors can buy a share or give you working capital to get your business started and then they get your profits you know a share of your profits as your business succeeds if it does well the government could just as well create or restrict those forms of ownership and organization to require that the workers also have to get a share of the profits, not just the people who contribute capital at the beginning, but the people who contribute labor at the beginning and all the way through the life of the business. There's no reason that the government, in instituting and upholding corporations and LLCs and the various forms of businesses that we have, couldn't include that kind of stipulation. And it's just a matter of us demanding that we want that kind of change.
4: I think that really goes to, uh, admittedly, to our last caller's point that a change like this would be, that would be very tough to do uh, because there's people right now that would want to have no part of it uh, with the idea that they would Mm -hmm. somehow be handing over some ownership of the company slowly to the, the workers.
3: Yeah, it would be very hard to do. I think the first step that I see, the, the way to light the path forward is for more and more people to see, including owners, to see the advantages of doing it voluntarily. And that's something that I am looking into how to do both, how to do it in a practical way and, and also how to find the employees who would be become good owners, You know, be really long-term partners in the business instead of just temporary employees of it. And that's a process of education and recruitment um, that's a lot more involved than just hiring the some qualified person who walks in the door and then firing him, firing them when they mess up or something. You're really forming a relationship. But there's a whole movement of worker-owned cooperatives. And there's a, a book that I read recently called The Companies We Keep. Um, I can't think of the name of the author right now, but if, some, if you we just look that up, The Companies We Keep, Um It's a guy who formed a worker-owned cooperative out of a construction company that he started in the 70s. So he talks about how he went through that process with his own business. And then he profiles a lot of other businesses that have done it. And some really big ones like Johnny's Select Seeds, who's one of the biggest providers of both commercial and home garden um, produce seeds. There's a a cable manufacturing company. So this isn't just idealist kind of hippie businesses, but a company that just manufactures industrial cable. The son who inherited it decided he wanted to the, all of the workers who worked there to become co-owners with him. And the advantages that they that the owners have found is that the workers become much more invested in the success of the business and in it working harmoniously in and in a way that's more pleasant to be a part of. Even so, even as they're losing some of their power and ownership and potential profit, they're gaining a lot in quality of life and in seeing this thing that they gave birth to as the entrepreneur, as the founder seeing it take on a life of its own, become a much more something with more longevity and with more vision that's going to last beyond maybe their own um, passing or retirement where they don't know who they're going to hand it on to and if that person's going to maintain it. They're raising up the next generation of owners who's going to have it when they're gone, and there's a lot of satisfaction in that. And so I think if we would start by encouraging that and um, both – just socially and, you know, increasing the prestige of that kind of move and as business owners pursuing it ourselves, but also we could legislatively work to encourage and incentivize um, cooperative ownership, prior, maybe much prior to making it a mandatory thing, but make it a more easy to do and advantageous optional thing to begin with that could be the beginning of a movement that in time leads to it becoming a norm instead of just an option.
4: I think the, that part about making it easier really resonates um, with me because the notion uh, or just trying to um, make that happen with my company almost seems like an impossibility, both just structurally and, and with the laws. But I'd say also, and this is a, a related point, Finding the right people who want that, and I can't – I don't remember where I saw this, but I remember reading something from um, Belloc where he lamented that if we we stayed too long in what he's called the servile state, that most people will never want to go back. They'll become comfortable, and sometimes I fear that's the case. I think there's people out there that are afraid of ownership uh, because of the risk, yeah, but I would say they don't realize – they're taking that risk already. They just don't know it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're taking that risk with no reward, really, <laughs> you know, their business can still go bottom up and then they're out of a job. But when the sheriff sale happens, they don't get the, <laughs> you know, the little bit of um, return on capital that the owner does at the end of the day. But you're right. I think there's a real, it would, it will take a real shift in mindset, not, It'll take a huge shift for the the capital owning class to be willing to give it up and probably not just a shift in mindset but in um, power balance, but for the laboring class, it will take a real shift in mindset too to want to take on the responsibility and the sort of pride of of ownership that would come with that kind of cooperative business structure but it's something I think that we can work toward by. Just culturally, like I said, giving it more prestige and creating more examples of it so that people, you know, they might not work in that kind of place, but maybe they know somebody that, that does, their neighbor or their friend or brother works in that kind of place, and over the time they start to get the idea that this wouldn't be so bad, it wouldn't be so risk, and it'd be really beneficial.
4: Okay, so... One of your other uh, suggestions or what you talked about, and this is one – I'll be honest. This one was new to me, so I'm not even going to give you a setup question other than just ask you about it. But you talked about how original corporations, you know, how they used to have – they were publicly owned for some venture. But you tied that into what you called a sovereign wealth fund. So explain that to us. Uh, what, What is that all about?
3: Yeah, the sovereign wealth fund, the sovereign is the state, so the sovereign of the land. And the sovereign wealth fund is the state owning something like a mutual fund um, where they have part ownership in private companies that are within their territory or possibly even private companies in other territories as well. And we have this in America in some places. I mean, this is what Alaska has with its um, fossil fuel resources. The state has ownership in that. And as that gets sold off, the proceeds from it get distri- get distributed to the people. There are states in Europe, particularly in the Nordic countries, where they've just invested a lot of their um, state income from taxes into sovereign wealth funds. And so then they have a continuing return from ownership, just like a stockholder would or like a mutual fund or an index fund or something. But it's coming that money is coming into the state. So enters the general fund and can be then used for, you know, whatever the people through the democratic process choose to use it for. And in that way, um, companies that are so big that they couldn't exist without massive support from the state in the form of corporate law and all of the processes and procedures and institutions that support the existence and continuation of corporations, companies that couldn't exist without that because they've grown to that size, would have to be serving the public good in a way, You know, at one time those corporations were instituted to do things that small businesses would never do like creating a, a transcontinental railway or something. Well, now any business of just about any size can become a corporation and we're probably not gonna turn the clock back on that, but we can return the notion of contributing to the public good to the nature of a corporation, which again, it's a voluntary thing. No business has to become a corporation but if they want that state support and the ability to raise capital and be, have, have reduced personal risk corporation brings, we could insist that they provide or contribute to the common good by having part of their ownership enter into the sovereign wealth fund. where then some of their profits would just enter the state general fund um, just, the way, just the same way the taxes do.
4: Yeah, I guess the pitfall there is is even just like the the tax code now is that, uh, you know, not to not to totally get down on certain groups of people, but the lawyers and the accountants would get involved uh, and we could possibly have some chicanery there. But certainly the concept makes sense about having to return some something back to the the very community that helps you.
3: Right. And. There's nothing in principle that separates this from what's happening now. I mean, in terms of lawyers and chicanery, that's going on on Wall Street already. Um, corporations on that level are not owned by a handful of individuals. they're owned in massively distributed and complex schemes of hedge funds and, and derivatives, you know all these all this um, Wall Street sort of jargon that covers over the fact. That's it's really a complex, impenetrable mass that up, or holds up and maintains a massive system of professionals and lawyers and investors and regulators and everything. So that's already happening. Um, there's just, there's, the only thing that would change is that one of those mutual funds would be owned by the government. All the money would go not to private investors, but to the general fund.
4: Okay, let's go ahead and take another call. Just um, we'll slow on the uptake with the buttons here. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, question for Zeb.
7: Uh, hello, can you hear me? Sure can. Um, this is Desmond Silvera. I had a question about um, distributism. So um, a lot of companies, mine included, uh, or the company I work for included, uh, offer stock options to employees that vest over time. Is that seen as a... Means of achieving distributism, or is that completely separate?
3: I think that yeah that falls under the umbrella um, there's one I would say one disadvantage to that or drawback of that, which is that those stock options don't give the employees a whole lot of power over the company in the way that direct ownership would, so you're you're getting some of the profit from the work that you're contributing to, and that is definitely a, a step towards what distributism calls for. I think it's a good incremental step. I think there's some things lacking in it that, from the ideal, but I think it's that's a great first step uh, along the way. It gives us part of the way to where we want to be.
4: Now, I Thank would you. also say that I think a lot of times with the employee stock, uh, the other, the other Hurdle towards making it uh, complete employee ownership, there's often limits on, on how much of that stock's going to go to the workers. Is, is that true?
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think in general, yeah, there's only so much that can be distributed because often the companies have gotten to where they are by having massive buy in from, from capital uh, investors.
4: And they're not going to be willing to give up uh, you know, too much of that if, if something is good right. as going.
7: Okay. Right. Desmond, anything else? Uh no, no. The, uh, well, actually, yes. So um, my uh, I I certainly am not uh, an expert on the topic. Uh I've just learned what I have about distributism over the past um let's say year. Um so my understanding is that uh with with socialists they would want higher taxes so that the government can step in and provide more services and and capitalists want would want lower taxes so that um individuals keep more but um how how exactly do we get to a distributed society um what what public policies would um would move us in that direction. Now, I, I heard you talking about, um, private, uh, uh, sovereign wealth funds and, and other means, but is there some certain tax policy or, um, I, I, guess I'm wondering, um, how, how, how does that work?
3: Yeah, sure. That's a fair question. How do we, implement any of these like right now, maybe. Um, because I think everything, if we were to, you know, if I were named emperor and we're able to institute all this tomorrow, the, the things that I describe sort of work together in concert to achieve the whole, but that's not going to happen. So some of the things that I, I talk about later in the essay that maybe we'll get to another time, like providing universal health care or, um, Education, uh, free education up to a certain level, if we don't fund that by having a sovereign wealth fund that could provide that just through ownership in private companies and the income that comes from that, yeah, that would have to be funded by either taxation or, um, depending on how you look at monetary policy, by government expenditure anyway. And so if we have to raise taxes to achieve some of those things to start with, where would a distributist want to raise Taxes first, and I would say most likely that would be in passive income and capital gains. Um, because for most for most workers, what they're making is not a profit, really. You know, it's the cost of production, the production being their own life. They're making a living wage if they're lucky, maybe a little better than that, a family wage, but they're not making that plus some. But people who are making passive income or who are or making capital gains by the sale of capital at a higher price than they paid for it. They're getting money for something that they didn't really do. It maybe it was a choice that they made that leads to them getting it, but it's not their actual work. And they're unless they're a retired person, in which case they have a right to a uh, living wage still with having to work. But in other cases, those people should be able to and should be working for the living. And that passive income is sort of on the top. So that's where I think we could what we could target first for if we need to raise revenues, that's where I would go to to try to raise revenues from.
4: All right. Uh, Thank you, Desmond. Uh, You know, I think Desmond's uh, question is a new one that all of us had when we first were exposed to distributism and and certainly one we hear a lot and it's why we're doing this, this episode. I think sometimes we're always looking for like that, you know, what's the distributist silver bullet that we could tomorrow pass Uh the distributist law and, bam, we'd all be there. And I I just don't think it's that easy because I think it's you. uh, You have to just start looking at each and every little thing in a distributist way and over time you build momentum towards a more distributist economy and society.
3: Right. And I think one of the really distinguishing things about it is that it needs to be required. It requires a more organic view of society. Capitalism is a and the general sort of free market economist view is able to turn everything into just numbers and cogs and see how we can rearrange things to be most productive, most efficiently, and create the greatest profits and concentrate them into the hands of the owners. And communism has tended in the past to take a similarly mechanistic view of human production and just look at what numbers do we need to hit with a five-year plan. But distributism, I think, realizes that everything has to work in concert. And it, there, is no, there is no silver bullet. There's no one policy. It's a whole bunch of little things that have to grow together in a mutually supportive way to create the kind of new society, um, new way of production and, and distribution and exchange that would support widespread and continuing ownership without it eventually just turning back into capitalism or into collectivism.
4: All right, well let's uh let's finish up then with the last one under the under your heading of countering capital concentration and this one I again I, I this one at least I when I read it made sense to me but I'd never thought about this one before but the notion of limiting a corporation's ability to own property in multiple states are, and you're not just saying multiple countries you're actually talking about multiple states so uh, we're we're where did you come up with that, and um, how do you see that being applied?
3: right well, I'm glad you asked where I came up with it because that's the uh, yeah, the important start we've seen like with the auto industry how labor in the auto industry was very strong in the from the 30's all the way up through maybe into the '70s, but when the auto industry was able to because of the development of of technology and changes in, in law, um, and the financial landscape was able to just move whole factories of thousands of workers and production of tens of thousands of vehicles to different countries or even just to different states out of Michigan and into Mississippi or South Carolina. They were able to break the power of, of organized labor because workers are not able to move five states away, uh, you know, just because of a board decision. And they're certainly not able to cease production for a year in the process of moving. So capital is much more mobile because it has no mouths to feed. It only has shareholders who usually are, are looking at the longer term and can go a year without profit if it means double profit the next year. But there's no reason that those companies had to be able to do that or that any other company has to be able to own property wherever in the nation or in the world they want. And I'm not specifically saying that I'm, I know the right answer is companies should not be able to own property in different states. I'm just saying that we can limit the this geographic range of corporations. And one option could be that they can't own them in another state. There's no natural reason they must be able to own property in different states. Or, or I mean, for that matter, if we wanted to get more restrictive in different counties or or we could say just in different countries, whatever it may be, because it really is up to us as the people who the state is supposed to serve and who are in control of the state to decide how we want these state-created organizations, which corporations are, how we want them to function. And what we've seen really is corporations are so big and powerful now and so geographically mobile that they're able to play states off of each other and play countries off of each other. And they can say, South Carolina, how can you give us less environmental regulations, less labor protections? our taxes, 10 years with no taxes, all right, now Michigan, can you you match that or can't you? And we're going to leave and impoverish your people if you don't match that. Well, they only have that power because they were given it by the state, the state being the federal government in that case. And corporations do the same thing to countries. They pit them against each other in a race towards the bottom to see who can compete for the favor of these private profit-making organizations that have grown beyond the capacity of the state to regulate. But they're not really beyond that capacity. They only are because we've voluntarily chosen to make them that big. And we could take that back. I mean, uh, business like Walmart, there's a lot of bad things that people say about Walmart. But there's a lot of good things about it, too, in terms of economy of scale and efficiency. Well, you could have a multinational corporation like Walmart, but that it doesn't actually own property in different locations or different states. You might have Walmart of Pennsylvania and Walmart of South Carolina, et cetera, all across America and Walmart of Canada. And these could be owned locally within the state and have to work in a sort of confederated way. And ideally as a distributist, I'd say they'd be worker-owned cooperatives at some local level who might work together um, to share resources and distribution networks and things like that to achieve the same economies of scale and efficiency but where ownership is limited within geographical bounds. So we don't have to, just to to have the standard of living that we do have, we don't have to give such unlimited power and mobility to corporations, which they only use to weaken labor. And they use it against both the worker and the consumer for the benefit of the owner. That's an option. That's an optional situation that we can change if we had the political will to do so. And I mean, it's, it's there for the taking, if we could just get, the people to want to do it and I think it'd be a, a very wise thing to do to avoid that situation where the only organization that can properly re- regulate Walmart now is something like the WTO it's bigger than even the United States you know in terms of its reach and its economic leverage in a lot of ways well if we don't want to have government having to be so big we're going to have to make it so business can't be so big and, and that's, I'm just, that's an option and I think it'd be a wise one to consider
4: Oh, that's another show coming on hudge and gudge, I think, uh, right there uh, with big government and and big business. Because I don't even think the, you know, because I agree that it would take federal action uh, because I can't see the WTO really doing anything there. But we'd almost need federal action for something as big as Walmart. But I don't think they even have the stomach for it. I think they're happy with Walmart. Mm -hmm. But I did like your Walmart example about, you know, in terms of the confederation, because in my mind, that really uh that goes against the old canard you hear that distributors just want everyone on a farm and mom and pop businesses and you know how are we <laughs> yeah. going to make cars and all of this stuff and you can have a distributist economy and still have big corporations uh, they do exist
3: yeah yeah i don't know if, how many people listening may have been in their local um, grocery cooperative you know a lot of Cities have, so usually it's a more organic leaning cooperative owned by the customers rather than by the workers, but a grocery cooperative. One of our big customers in Pittsburgh is a cooperative, but they're a member of an association of grocery cooperatives, and they have a lot of, the association provides a lot of resources for all the member organizations. And more and more, it's starting to take on the feel if you go to different ones in different cities where you're seeing some of the same things because they're able to negotiate Um, bulk price deals with some of the big suppliers they're able to get some branding and like flyers and different things made that they, that they all can use. So they're getting a price break and that kind of thing. So they're working sort of like a big national franchise or national um, business, but they're all completely locally owned and operated. They just work together to pool resources and have some of the same advantages of a national company while still being local.
4: Yeah, so it, it absolutely can can be done. Yeah. Okay, well, I think, folks, that's about all we're going to have tonight. But, uh, Zeb, before you go, uh, I, you, you have a podcast as well. Why don't you tell everyone about it so they can uh, check it out?
3: Sure, yeah. Yeah, my podcast is called Wayward. It's spelled W-E-Y-W-A-R-D. And it's me and two other guys talking about things that are weird from a christian perspective so anything from popular culture to politics and um, mythology fairy tales we've had on some very interesting guests we're currently on hiatus but we've got something like about 20 episodes that we've made so far and we'll be coming back in october so yeah so it's a lot of fun a little bit of politics a little bit of culture anything that seems uh... kind of weird from a christian perspective
4: it's enjoyable i uh, i listen i I have listened to it since you uh sent me that first link and i've uh, enjoyed doing yard work while listening to it so uh, it uh, <laughs> it makes the time go by now uh in terms of articles uh for the kitchen table what uh I think you had one come out today
3: yeah I had one come out today an economic case for reinstituting traditional marriage and I've got part one up today uh part two comes out on Wednesday, why we should make traditional marriage, that being a man and wife and children a public institution again.
4: Okay, well, I would say that uh, that sounds like another show idea as well. So until uh, next time, uh, I thank you for being on and I look forward to our uh, our next chat together. I think it was uh, really good stuff.
3: Yeah, Thank you, Jeff. I enjoyed it.
4: All right, and folks, uh, again, uh, we're part of the, uh, the Dorothy Day Caucus made up of members of the American solidarity party. I'm Stu. Uh, this is the day's work podcast. Hope you, uh, you like what you heard and hope you'll be back, uh, for our next episode, uh, in two weeks, uh, the guest will be Monica Solar or Monica Tully, depending on how, you, where you know her from, but she is a candidate uh, of the American solidarity party running for office up in New Jersey. So we'll get to hear some, uh, boots on the ground stories there and get to know, uh, get to know our candidate uh, for office. So uh, until then, uh, Whisper and Jack uh, will take us out, and I uh, wish you all a good night.
2: Well, I heard a robin before. I es? of gladness brings happiness to me.
7: Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers. Subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.